This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You lost all constitutional rights the moment you walked through that door. When the judge sat down there, I sentenced you to 10 years at the Idaho State Penitentiary. You walked in that door, you was a number. And the inmates understood that. six guys that were sitting in a place smoking a joke and a drinking coffee pretty quick they'd have to plan in there to, to get under your skin some way or, or try to figure a way out welcome folks to another episode of behind gray walls a podcast about the old idaho state penitentiary and the men and women who worked and resided here my name's anthony and i'm in my office here with samuel hey everybody and on the phone with sky Hi, everyone. I'm in Texas. Oh, lucky you. Uh, How's it going? <laughs> oh, lucky me. It's good, actually. Um, semester, you know, as ever, just cruising right along and um, trying not to think about how it's really hot still. So, um, but good. It's, it's good. I mean, how are you guys? Last week at the uh, behind the scenes tours were amazing. Um, I got to chat with a bunch of people down in the dungeon and Sam chat with all kinds of folks. Were you in Treehouse and uh, 1890s? 1890s, uh, which was fun because there's a lot of stories that I've talked about this season that I could connect to that space. Uh, always fun to talk about stuff in the space that happened. Yeah, and then just this past weekend, we had a bunch of people in for the last paranormal investigation of the year. Um, hopefully, they had a great time and had some spooky experiences. And we are, you know, super busy. For this Friday and Saturday night, we are hosting our Squawky and Spirits event. Get your tickets. By the time we release this episode, they might be sold out. So if you haven't already bought them, go to our website, history.idaho.gov. Go to events and purchase those tickets. It's $20, and it's four hours of fun. There's a presentation by Sam about really cool ghost stories. We have uh, some actors coming and performing some Lovecraft. There are cemetery tours this year as well. For an additional $15, you get a private tour to the prison cemetery and some stories. And the biggest thing, the haunted houses. Yes, we have two haunted houses. And this is the first time we've ever opened up the backside of maximum security. So our haunted infirmary is actually in the old prison hospital. So if you want to have a double awesome exciting time to one go through a haunted house and two go through an area that most visitors have never ever visited get your tickets come on out it's gonna be a great time that old hospital space is pretty spooky so uh even even not dressed up as a haunted house that's uh that's so fun what a fun event i am jealous that i'm not in idaho you should not be jealous you're not in texas um (laughs) because that sounds like such a fun time I hope it, I mean, I'm sure it will go so amazing, but I hope it is great for you guys. The hospital is so eerie. So eerie. It's so Even setting up uh, in there, putting decorations in there, you, you get the creeps. 
Yeah. Ugh, it's spooky. It's spooky. It is. And it's it's kind of already naturally a little bit maze-like. And then we've actually created some temporary walls to add to it. So it's, oh my gosh. it's a really cool space. It's a cool haunted house, and we're leaning into it. And then, of course, if you ever wanted to go to the third and fourth tiers of Four House, we have that haunted house back, the Terror and Cell Block 4. So... Uh, yeah, it's going to be really fun. I'm so excited. And if you're listening to this right now and you're like, I don't really want to go to a Halloween party, but I would love to volunteer. We're still looking for potentially some people to be scare actors in these haunted houses. So just reach out, send an email to us and, uh, we'll get you on the list and we'll get you in a costume and scaring some folks. So. Anyway, so, <laughs> Sky, I think that you are starting today with an interesting story and possibly a little bit of light at the end. I think so. Yeah, I um, think this is a really, I think it may be one of my favorite stories that we've done so far. So today I am covering number 11513, Lalonda King. My sources are, as always, her inmate file, which can be found at the Idaho State Archives, newspapers.com records, ancestry.com records, issues of the clock from April, August, and September 1964, the history page at clearwatercounty.org, cityoforofino.org, an article called Why They Call It Orofino from the Lewiston Morning Tribune from February 26, 1933, orofinolumberjackdays.org, nezpurse.org, Treaty Council of 1855 from wallawalla2020.net, Lolo Hot Springs, quotations of the Nez Perce flight on the U.S. Forest Service webpage of the Nez Perce or Nimipu National Historic Trail, an article titled Nez Perce Reservation from the Spokesman Review on December 10th, 1921, another article titled Heads Were Popping Up All Over the Place by the Lad Hamilton from the Lewiston Morning Tribune, June 25th, 1961, clearwatercountymuseum.org, an article titled Mr. Leon's Closes Doors After More Than 50 Years by Anthony Kuypers from Moscow Pullman Daily News, and then Wikipedia just, uh, you know, Brief History, Orofino, Nez Perce, Treaty of Walla Walla, and the Nez Perce War. Lots of sources today. So, Lalonda Lee King was born April 5th, 1945 in Orofino, Idaho to Forrest G. King and Ida Treadwell King. She was the youngest of four kids. She had older sisters Lawana and Lacreta, maybe Lucretia, and older brother Bradley. At the time of her birth, her parents owned a 100-acre ranch just a few miles from Orofino. So we're going to pause in an unusual place because I want to talk about Orofino. This was a really interesting dive, so please come with me on this journey. So Orofino is in north-central Idaho, just as the state kind of starts to narrow into the panhandle that borders Washington State and Canada and Montana. This area, like much of northern Idaho, was historically the territory of the Nez Perce indigenous peoples. This territory, in the first decades of the 19th century, was roughly 17 million acres of land, which included more than 70 permanent villages of Nez Perce. In 1805, the Nez Perce were the largest tribe on the Columbian River Plateau, with a population of roughly 6,000. The first event that resulted in the ceding of native lands to the U.S. government in the Northwest was the Treaty Council of 1855 in Walla Walla, in which the Yakima, Nez Perce, and Umatilla reservations were created. 
In this treaty, the Nez Perce lost nearly 10 million acres of land, leaving them with just 7.5 million acres. In 1869, a group of Nez Perce were coerced into signing away 90% of their reservation to the U.S. government, leaving them with just 750,000 acres. And under the treaty terms, all Nez Perce members were to move onto their much smaller reservation just east of Lewiston. In 1877, the forced removal of tribal members who refused to leave their ancestral lands after the 1869 treaty led to the Nez Perce War, which was waged between June and October of 1877. Nez Perce bands comprising of 250 warriors, 500 women and children, and 2,000 head of livestock led by Chiefs Joseph, Whitebird, and Looking Glass attempted a fighting retreat. Their goal was to find shelter in Canada, but after losing the last battle at Bears Paw Mountains in modern-day Montana, a large majority, 418 tribal members, led by Chief Joseph, were forced to surrender, taken prisoner, and sent by train to Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. Upon surrender, Chief Joseph gave a now immortal speech which ended with these tragic words, quote, Hear me, my chiefs. I am tired. My heart is sick and sad. From where the sun now stands, I will fight no more forever, end quote. The Nez Perce would not be allowed to return to the Northwest until 1885 on the orders of William Tecumseh Sherman, despite the fact that the U.S. Army Generals Nelson A. Miles and Oliver Otis Howard had promised them that they could return immediately. Chief Joseph was never allowed to return to the Nez Perce Reservation in his life. General Philip H. Sheridan said of the Nez Perce peoples, quote, We took away their country and their means of support, broke up their mode of living, their habits of life, introduced disease and decay among them, and it was for this and against this that they made war. Could anyone expect less? End quote. Then in 1895, Idaho had its own Oklahoma Sooners movement when the U.S. government opened up the Nez Perce Reservation, the 750,000 acres that were left, to white settlement in a proclamation signed by President Grover Cleveland. And hundreds of white men staked out claims all across the reservation, including on land currently already owned by Nez Perce families, planning out town lots even before the starting gun for this land rush had been shot. After this land rush, the reservation shrunk even smaller, now only 212,390 acres. The government paid some of the tribal members roughly $300 per head for the 500,000 acres that they had taken, but that was all the compensation that the Nez Perce received. Now the reservation covers about 770,000 acres, so they ended up getting a majority of that land back. And they currently have 3,500 enrolled citizens, though much of the reservation's current population is white. And Orofino is the largest city that is a majority white on the Nez Perce Reservation, which I, I guess I didn't realize or didn't know that it was on the reservation itself. The first white men to pass through Clearwater County was the party of Lewis and Clark in 1806, land at the time uh, that was Nez Perce territory. Save for a few missionaries, very few white men were seen in Clearwater County until Captain Elias D. Pierce found gold in the area. And beginning in 1860, there were two cities founded in the area. The first was Pierce, the second was Orofino. And Orofino, for our Spanish speakers or anyone who knows Spanish knows, that means fine gold, referencing the minerals that the miners were finding in the area. 
According to a Lewiston Morning Tribune from 1933, the state actually has seen two cities named Orofino in its history. There's the old Orofino, um, and Oro and Fino are two separate words, whereas now Orofino is currently one word. And that old Orofino was founded in the headwaters of Orofino Creek, and the current Orofino, just one word, on the Clearwater River east of old Orofino. So close by, but they are two distinct sites. By June 1861, the old Orofino had 60 log houses, 10 general stores, and several saloons and other shops with a population of about 500 almost exclusively male miners. Much like any old towns built almost primarily of wooden structures, the old Orofino burned down in 1867. As the gold rush in the northern part of the state waned, entrepreneurs began to realize how much timber was in the area, and timberman Frederick Weyerhauser began a timber company in 1900. And Weyerhauser is still a prominent lumber company in the region. If you live in, in the Idaho region, if you go to Home Depot or if you buy wood for any reason, Weyerhauser, I think they might even do paper. You probably have seen that name around. After he founded this timber company, over the next few years, Weyerhauser and his son start three other companies, the Clearwater Timber Company, the Pine Tree Lumber Company, and the Potlatch Timber Company, which you might recall from the Dorothy Jean Tate episode, that is who Dorothy's husband worked for. And you'll, you'll hear more about the Weyerhauser Company later in this season. Hey. Uh, I'll be okay. covering it pretty extensively when I talk about someone who was incarcerated at Alcatraz. Oh, okay. So with the white land rush onto Nez Perce Reservation land, the new town of Orofino was platted in 1898. The next year, in 1899, the Northern Pacific Railroad completed tracks and a depot in Orofino, and so more settlers came to the area. Orofino, when it first was founded, was part of Shoshone County of Washington Territory. It wasn't part of Idaho. When the Idaho legislature annexed South Shoshone County, Orofino came with it. And a few years later, in 1904, that same area was annexed to Nez Perce County. So it became part of Nez Perce County. Seven years later, in 1911, the Idaho legislature established Clearwater County with Orofino as the county seat. According to the Lewiston Morning Tribune article, by 1933, Orofino had become an important trading and banking area for the farming, lumber, and mining industries in the area, as well as the administrative headquarters for the Clearwater National Forest. Orofino is also home to the Mental Health Hospital, State Hospital North, the northern counterpart to State Hospital South in Blackfoot, which we talk about quite a bit on this podcast. Uh, believe it or not, the hospital is located near Orofino High School, whose mascot is the Maniac. Every year, Orofino hosts an annual 4th of July celebration, and every fall they host Lumberjack Days as part of the county fair, sponsored by Orofino Celebrations, Inc., have you guys ever been or have you heard of Lumberjack Days? No. <laughs> that sounds fun. It does. It seems to be as fun as it sounds. So Lumberjack Days began on September 28, 1947, quote, with the idea of furthering our lumber industry and way of life along with that of farming, end quote. The very first events in these 1947 Lumberjack Days were chopping, bucking, two-man sawing, and team-pulling contests, all of which displayed skill and brawn. I tried to go through and find what a lot of these terms mean. So the current events of Lumberjack Days 
includes a massive parade, the crowning of county fair and lumberjack royalty, a carnival, and a log show where all of the logging competitions are held. So, uh, logging competitions include mixed gender sawing, which is called Jack and Jill sawing, <laughs> men and women's log burling, which is that thing where you you have a log in the water and you have to like balance and kind of run on it. Wow. Um, yeah. Which I that. It's so cool. They have men and women's bucking, and bucking is the process of cutting a felled tree into logs, so making it smaller. Horizontal chop, which is swinging from the side, kind of the typical lumberjack motion we think of. Vertical chop over the head. Obstacle pole sawing, which is there's a big tall log stuck in the ground, and you have to run up to the top of it and hand saw off like a top slice of this log. While obviously while you're on the log, axe throwing for each gender as well as for juniors, power sawing, which is using chainsaws, two pole speed climbing, which is climbing to the top of a really tall pole using just a rope around the trunk. Think kind of like um, the scene in Mulan where they have to climb to the top of that tall pole and she has to use the weights, kind of like that. And then tree topping, which is climbing, tag relay, tug of war, springboard chop, which is chopping the trunk of a tree while standing on a board inserted into the tree trunk, <laughs> if that makes sense. Um, two jack sawing, so two man sawing, and choker setting, which is attaching a cable to logs for retrieval. Another way they have to like climb up to the top and like hook something around it. All of this sounds absolutely amazing it sounds insane um, oh my god it sounds insane and if you want google any of these or just like lumberjack days and because they they hold them oftentimes in canada and uh, wisconsin you know a lot of the places that like idaho have a lot of forests um and it it is wild it is so cool so anyway it's so cool that's, that's lumberjack fun. days of orofino sounds like such an amazing time and i think that's like on my Idaho bucket list. For 2023, the Lumberjack Days were about a month ago from the time that we were recording this, September 14th through 17th. So if that sounds like something that you would be interested in, keep your eyes open for next year's Lumberjack Days. The population of Orofino is currently about 3,100. At the time of Lalanda's birth in 1945, the population of Orofino was about 1,600. Lalanda's parents were both born and raised in Lewis County, Idaho, which borders Clearwater County. Sometime after Forrest and Ida married, the couple acquired 160 acres of land near cul-de-sac, which is where they raised their family. Lalanda's early life seemed fairly normal, or what we might consider normal, and it, it seemed quite happy. She and her siblings got along well. They had the usual arguments, quote, but definitely nothing serious, end quote. She was very close to her mother until her late teens, but teenage girls and their moms often have a period where they just don't get along very well. And during this period, she became closer to her father, especially as she began to help him around the family farm and especially with the livestock. She enjoyed working around animals so much that she joined 4-H and the Saddle Club and even rode her father's horse in Saddle Club rides. And so according to her mother, quote, she seemed to enjoy this outdoor life immensely, end quote. Lalanda attended school in cul-de-sac, Idaho, from kindergarten to 12th grade. After graduating, her parents helped send her out to Lewiston, where she began attending beauty school. Lalanda occasionally attended the Methodist church and Sunday school growing up, but her family wasn't particularly dedicated to attending. 
Overall, her family seemed like good people. They had good reputations. They raised their children in a really positive environment, and the family was really tight-knit. And even if she wasn't great at school, by all accounts, and especially from her mother, but also from other accounts, Lalanda was a lovely, very normal young woman. She may have been a bit introverted. I mean, me. So just she's just a normal teenage girl. This is from her mother, quote, She was always kind, gathering up her extra clothes to give to ones less fortunate. She gets along good with family and friends, extra kind to animals. She liked carefree and pleasant friends, outdoor life, dancing, riding horses, and car races. Tries to help ones that have been in trouble. It isn't in her nature to be bad. She did not always think we were always right, but she never made a big fuss about it, end quote. She enjoyed watching TV, dancing, movies. She liked to go horseback riding at the saddle club, and she liked to occasionally date. She is just, again, like the most normal of teenage girls that I think I've covered. So, just like many teenage girls, the decisions that she makes when she's out on her own for the first time are not the best. In April 1963, she was arrested for shoplifting after she was caught stealing makeup supplies from the Payless drugstore in Lewiston. She sat in a jail cell for about 15 minutes before the charges were dropped. In August 1963, she was arrested for quote-unquote loitering in Lewiston, sentenced to five days in jail, and served only three or four. I couldn't find any other details of that charge. But also, like many teenage girls, she made friends with some kids who liked to live on the edge, as it were. She made friends with a classmate, Judy Louise Annis, who was 19, and the two of them made two guy friends, James A. Hollenbeck, who was 20, and Michael Mallis, who was 22. And although Lewiston has been a pretty major city in the northern part of the state for most of the state's history, in the early 1960s, the population was only about 12,000, and there probably wasn't much to do in town. So I went to a, a tiny little college town in Ephraim, Utah, middle of central Utah, and when I went there, the population was about um, half of this. It was about 6,000. Um, there was nothing nothing to do in that town. And so double the population would help a little bit, but not a lot. So one of the things that the kids could do was cruise around town in a car. So on the evening of February 16th, 1964, the four of them were driving around Lewiston with James Hollenbeck in the driver's seat. According to Lalanda and Judy, while driving around, the boys mentioned that they knew areas where other people had committed robbery by stealing purses and had gained some money doing this. Oh, no. After the boys mentioned it, the foursome began to discuss the possibility of them maybe doing the same thing to get some money. It was decided that the girls would be the ones to actually steal the purses and the men would be the getaway drivers. Which, I feel like, it was the men's idea they should be the one to do it, but... The girls said that at two or three different points they started to follow a woman with the intention of stealing her purse, but each time they chickened out. Finally, they saw what they perceived to be an elderly woman and began following her, allegedly at the suggestion of one of the boys. This woman was Jessie Painter, a 71-year-old Lewiston resident, on her way home from church. After walking a block and a half behind her, Jessie turned off the sidewalk and began to go up the walk to her house. Lalanda ran up behind Jessie and tapped her on the shoulder. As she turned to see what Lalanda wanted, Judy ran up and snatched Jessie's purse. Jessie accused them of pushing and knocking her to the ground, while Lalanda claimed they didn't purposely push her, but that she had fallen down while scuffling with Judy for the handbag. Thankfully, she was not injured despite her fall to the ground. But they managed to wrestle the purse away from her. 
Leaving Jesse on the ground, they ran to the car, giving the handbag to the boys as they got in. In the handbag, they found a check worth $65 and $13 in cash. And according to Lalanda, the group spent some of that $13 that night on just various things. The next day, Judy cashed the check and gave the cash over to the boys, who kept literally all of it. Lalanda said that, in fact, all she and Judy got after knocking over an old woman was, quote, a package of cigarettes and 11 cents, end quote. Wow. So, 11 cents, to give you a sense of how kind of worth, not worthless, but how little this is. In 1964, 11 cents, do you guys want to guess? 70 cents. Okay. Three bucks. Ooh, Anthony takes it on this one. A dollar eight. A dollar and eight cents is all they got for committing this felony. They stole $13 in cash. The $13 in 1964 is worth about $127 today. And that $65 check was worth $638. Those boys gave $2 of a $65 check. So all four of them were arrested that same day that they cashed the check. Allegedly, all of the money was found on the men, except for probably 22 cents. So upon hearing that Lalanda had been arrested for robbery, her parents were shocked. Quote, Her parents stated they thought that this girl had higher morals than this and felt she would have no way involved herself had she realized the circumstances. And it was concluded that possibly this girl did share in the set after the boys ridiculed the girls and urged them to continue with their plans. It is believed that neither of these two girls would have done this without some influence from other people whom they had attached themselves to. End quote. All four were held in the Nez Perce County Jail for about a month when they were sentenced to five years for robbery. Judy and Lalanda came into the jail together, of course, and we will do, do Judy another time. She has quite the story, um, but we are just sticking with Lalanda today. So they entered the penitentiary on March 31st, 1964. So on her intake form, her plea was guilty, sentenced five years. Sex, female, race, white, age 19. Nationality is American, and then underneath it says German, Scotch, descent. The typewriter got, like, smushed those two lines together, so it's confusing. Birthplace, Orofino, Idaho, eyes brown, hair brown, and then in parentheses, dyed black. Again, just a teenage girl. Um, height, 67 inches, so she's about five foot seven. Weight, 147. Complexion, medium. Build, medium. She is vaccinated, no tattoos, drinks occasionally, smokes, yes, does not gamble, no drugs, religious denomination, Methodist. We know she graduated in the 12th grade. Her occupation on this is listed as student, but on another document, they list her occupation as rodeo writer, (laughs) um, which is fun. Um, But she must have just been very talented on a horse from her days in 4-H. Her battalion mostly just shows scars on her arms and knees. It also noted that her teeth were fair, though one of them was missing. Upon their arrival, Lalanda and Judy made up the 14th and 15th inmates in the women's ward at that time. Uh, so they were there during some of the women's ward fullest times. When they came in, they were serving with former podcast subjects Dorothy Cox, Episode 4, Estella Wilson, Episode 71, Claire Johnson-Lopez, Episode 51, and the third incarceration of Barbara Ann Singleton. At one point during their stay, there were 19 women in the women's ward. Again, in, what, maybe eight cells for two people each, seven cells for two people each. Yeah. Um, So it is beyond cramped quarters in the women's ward. 
Unlike most of our women, Lalonda came into the prison at the time that the penitentiary's publication, The Clock, actually included a page for editorials from the women's ward. Uh, They didn't add a women's ward page to the newspaper until sometime between December 1959 and January 1962. A couple missing in 6061, and then it ended in December 1965. So it really only had a women's ward page for up to like five or six years, but it, it, they, they published it up through between what, 50 and 70? 47 to 75. Yeah. So it's, it's very unique that we uh, have her and that she's mentioned. That's the other thing is, is of course, several women were here um, while they published this, but not all of them had um, as large a part uh, as Lalonda did, as we'll see. So from a brief article written by Women's Ward page editor and fellow inmate Amber Anderson, quote, something new has been added to the Women's Ward. I am sure all who have seen the change in the appearance and poise of the women's inmates have said a silent prayer of thanks. Fortunately for us, we have with us a woman who has had two years training in a qualified charm school. She's been kind enough to offer to teach anyone who wishes to take part in such a training program. It is wonderful to see these women doing everything possible to acquire poise, beauty, understanding, and an edification that is very necessary for them to succeed in the life they will lead when they are released from here, end quote. So as we know, Lalonda went to two years of beauty school, and I love that she is sharing that knowledge with other women who wanted to learn. And I'm sure it helped them feel a little more normal. You know, this is something we're not going to see in prisons today. But as we see throughout the history of the women's ward, they were often allowed items from the outside. And so that probably helped them feel a little, little more normal, and I'm sure that helped their mental health quite a bit. So she might have begun this practice of teaching all the women in the women's ward because on April 3rd, 1964, Mr. Nick of Mr. Nick's Beauty School wrote the warden about Lalanda. And he says, quote, I am not familiar with any of your training programs, but it is my desire and her parents that she try to further her education in cosmetology as much as possible while serving her time. Assuming that you do not have a program of this type set up, would it be permissible for her to have a mannequin head, cosmetology books, and some implements so that she could continue her practice in this field? Implements would consist of comb, brush, hair clips, and waving lotion, end quote. And Anthony and Sam, do you guys think this request was granted? Yeah, I mean, I would I would love to think so. It's Warden Clap, and he's trying to find things for people to do, but I feel like that's a little frivolous. Believe it or not, it actually was granted. <gasps> oh, that's so cool. Clap for the win. So Warden Clap wrote back and said that the authorities had no objection to sending in the article so that Lalonda could continue her studies, probably because it would allow her to leave the penitentiary with fresh skills to use upon her release. Oh, that's so cool. He, that's rad. Yeah, he did add, quote, please do not send any lotions or beauty supplies which may contain alcohol or have an alcoholic base as these would not be permitted, end quote. Okay, yeah. Um, so yeah, that's the that's the main rule, and this is one of the few times I have seen a rule like that not broken, but you know I I think there was for them a, a legitimate reason, and Mister Nick says we're doing it because her parents want her to do this. I want her to keep doing this, so I love that. Yeah, and it, and indeed, in fact, soon after this correspondence, Lalanda's cousin visited the prison and bought a package that included hairbrushes, rollers, rubber gloves, cuticle scissors. What? Three orange manicure sticks, a nail file, tweezers, and other various beauty supplies. Literally a file. <laughs> so I don't, I'm sure that they had rules about, like, you know, you only get it during certain times and we keep it the rest of the time. 
According to a report made soon after her intake, Lalonda apparently even had her cosmetology textbook on her person when she was arrested, which matron Lula Warren kept in a closet until her use of it was deemed okay. (laughs) And Lalonda continued to make a great impression. As in August, the Chick Chatter, which is the women's word page, reported, quote, Tim, alias Lalonda, was assigned to the kitchen as cook, and while she might be there after seven years of 4-H work and many blue ribbons to show for it, she is a great cook, and we all thank her for the marvelous job she is doing, end quote. I do want to make a quick comment about this nickname. You heard me call her Tim. This is the first time that I've mentioned it. It does appear that Lalonda seemed to prefer the name Tim, um, or at least the nickname Tim. According to a parole agent who made a report in March 1964, of course, after her incarceration, quote, her nickname Tim did not seem to fit her, and it seemed uncommon for her to be like to be called Tim as it sounded more masculine than feminine, end quote. However, this seems to be in direct contradiction with the fact that any mentions of her in the clock referred to her as Tim, that it appears she referred to be referred to as Tim for most of her life, and she clearly had that nickname prior to her coming into prison. Uh, I don't know why she got that nickname, but the same probation officer said that Lalonda was pretty tomboyish and that she wasn't super interested or even overly skilled in beauty shop work, so... It might be possible that Lalonda might have identified with her gender in more masculine terms than the average woman, but I don't want to make any assumptions or speculations about Lalonda's gender identity or sexuality from 60 years in the future. There are a few things that I lear- we learn later in the story that may, again, lean towards this idea, and I do often try to refer to people in the names that they prefer, but in this case, because she came under the prison under the name Lalonda, and she's only ever referred to Tim as a nickname in just a few documents. Just for clarity's sake, I'm going to keep calling her Lalonda, but if you hear the name Tim, again, it's not some random guy. Yeah. Hmm. The last mention of her in the clock came in September 1964 when it mentioned that Lalonda, or as it says in the in the article Tim, with Judy Annis and a woman with the nickname Bobby, who I couldn't figure out, they put a coat of whitewash on the outside of the women's ward followed by a new layer of green paint on the trim. Quote, it is certainly an improvement, end quote. Cool. The article finished. And this, this is not related super closely to Lalonda, but underneath this article, there's a brief mention. There's a chick chatter uh, that I thought was kind of a fun look into the women's ward, which again, whenever we can get these little glimpses, I I love to to talk about it. So it says, quote, several of the girls have pet names and sayings. I thought the readers of the clock might be interested in a few. So the nicknames are Ignats, I-G-N-A-T-S, Zoop, Mighty Mouse, Bobby, and Ricky. Then there are some of the sayings, don't start no stuff, or go ahead on, which is just seems so of the time. Uh, go ahead on. Don't start no stuff. That's our new tagline. I like it. Don't start no stuff. <laughs> don't start no stuff. <laughs> During her incarceration, she was visited several times by family members, and almost always her familial visitors brought her things, from toothpaste to beauty supplies to clothing. And I think this shows that despite her mistakes, her family still loved her and supported her, which is lovely and unfortunately often very rare in the history of the prison. She first applied for parole in September 1964, which was pushed to the April 1965 meeting. After that meeting, it was denied. However, in April, they had already compiled a parole plan, which included returning to her family in cul-de-sac. It also stated, quote, She would like to work for a veterinarian because she likes animals. 
Her father talked with a veterinarian and found that the job requires knowledge of bookkeeping as well as knowledge of animals, so she took a bookkeeping course here, end quote. There is one document in her file that I found that stated that on July 2nd, 1965, she was let out of cell confinement and, quote, returned to former status by action of disciplinary board, end quote. However, this is the most amount of detail I found on the situation, and this is one of the rare times that I found evidence of a woman inmate receiving punishment by the disciplinary board, so I wish I knew what happened. We've had in the past a um, couple inmates who were sent to like the Ada County Jail because they were kind of riling up some of the women in the women's ward. That was around this time. I can't say for sure that it was at the same time. So again, I don't know what this was, what happened, but obviously because of this, she did not receive parole in September 1965. However, she was placed on the January 1966 Board of Pardons, and in this session, Mark Maxwell motioned to discharge Alonda from the penitentiary effective February 2nd, subject to good behavior. And this time, she did behave well and was indeed just discharged on February 2nd, 1966. She served one year, ten months, and two days of a five-year sentence. So she did indeed return to cul-de-sac to live with her parents. She would remain in cul-de-sac for the rest of her life. And unfortunately, there are very few records of her from this point forward. So here's what we know. On June 4th, 1968, Lalonda married Fred O. Fox. This was a short-lived marriage, and the two were divorced on December 2nd, 1971. Fred filed, citing irreconcilable differences. On this divorce record, she listed her occupation as clerk, so she likely put those bookkeeping classes she took in the penitentiary to good use. I also found a marriage record from Virginia City, Nevada from May 5th, 1978 to someone named James E. Arthur, but I never found any other records pertaining to this marriage, and including a divorce record. Her obituary didn't make note of this marriage, but it noted her first marriage to Fred, so I'm not really sure what the situation is there. According to her obituary, which referred to her as Tim, again intimating she might have preferred that nickname with those closest to her at least, Lalanda worked as a flagger for a construction company and later became a cook at Lewiston Care Center, so she really must have been a good cook, like they said, in the clock. And she passed away on February 25th, 2015, at the age of 69. She is buried in the Craigmont Cemetery with the adjoining plot reserved for her older sister, Lucretia. Their gravestone includes images of a two-story house, construction trucks, and the figure of either a skier or a hiker. I couldn't quite tell what it was. And then underneath each of their names and birth and death dates is engraved with their nicknames, Blondie for Lucretia and Tim for Lalanda. And that is the story of our number 11513, Lalanda Lee King. That was very sweet, Sky. Yeah, that's really cool. I've never heard of beauty supplies being brought into the prison that's yeah. like new to me and then like the women doing the whitewashing the kind of yeah painting the walls around the women's ward I, it makes sense mm-hmm. i yeah i i would have thought you know unfortunately that they probably would have brought in the male prisoners to right. do that job but you know to, to imagine her doing that and to probably still see some of the uh, remnants of that paint that she probably put up because the women's ward closed not long after she left. And yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, You know, there is so much of her story that is untold. Again, it was kind of one of those, you just get involved with the wrong people when you're young. And 
you know, I think she she worked really hard to move past that time in her life, and I, I think she did a wonderful job. But yeah, thank you so much for for going on this journey with me, and yeah. I hope you learned a little bit about Orofino. I did not did That's not know really any cool. of that. And so recent. That's it. Behind gray walls field trip to Lumberjack Days next September. Ooh yeah. <laughs> that would be so fun. <laughs> I love it. There was a girl named. What's her name now? <laughs> Funny man. Missing her because she was one that all of us seemed to like the most because she was one she didn't gossip. She was uh, friendly with all of us, but she she absolutely would not gossip. She wouldn't take the one person's side against the other. Do uh, you remember what she was in for? And I can't even remember what she was in for. I know she had been a beautician, had been going to beauty school, and. Uh, she had decided that it was, she didn't want to be a, take it as a career because uh, she said she couldn't stand and do women's hair and gossip. Oh. Listen to all the gossip and <laughs> that. I know we're saying don't start no stuff, but I want you to start your story. <laughs> all right, have, well. Have I, have I figured out transitions yet? I think so. I think so. <laughs> yes. <laughs> But it's all that dissertation writing. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, I have to say, my story is not so lighthearted as Sky's is today. Oh uh, no, we should have ended on mine. Maybe, maybe. But I think it, I, it, it might put a lot of visitors into spooky season and it might encourage oh. some folks, if, if you're at Squawking Spirits, to take that little tour to the prison cemetery with our guide. I am covering Ulysses G. Beer Up number 2062. My sources today, of course, his prison file from the Idaho State Archives, Library of Congress chronicling American newspaper collection, digitized Idaho Daily Statesman on Newsbank hosted by the Boise, Maine Library, newspapers.com, the Wyoming Digital Newspaper Collection, the amazing staff of the Wyoming State Archives, the Wyoming Frontier Prison website history page, the newspaper collection from the Pocatello Library, an article about Bright's disease, symptoms, causes, diagnosis, and treatment from the healthmatch.io website, a National Park Service write-up about the 1906 earthquake and the role of the Army, a Visit Montana website article about Livingston, Montana, and a history of the U.S. Army Garrison Presidio of Monterey on the U.S. Army website. So today, Ulysses G. Beerup lived under many aliases throughout his life. And I will say that I had a, a difficult time. There are several Ancestry.com biographies that have been tied to him, all with different birth dates. Based on the prison record and what I can pin down, Ulysses Beerup was born around 1886 or 1887 in Michigan to George Albert or Albert Beerup. Later, Ulysses simply put Albert Beerup as his closest relative living in Michigan. Albert actually had a brother named Ulysses who died at a young age in 1885, and about two years later, his son was born and he named him after his brother. So that's where the name Ulysses comes from, kind of a family name. 
This is a pretty unique name that conjures up adventure, as in the Greek Odyssey, and American pride for those who think of uh, Union General Ulysses S. Grant, who helped bring victory over the Confederacy in the Civil War and later become the 18th president of the United States. So Ulysses was a great name, you know, 10, 15 years after the Civil War. Still a great name. Still a great name. It's true. I, I actually really like it. Ulysses in Latin actually means wrathful, and I think our subject fits the bill for all of these name connections. Uh, his father married Emily Josephine Lumley in 1881, and from what I could gather, the couple had 16 children. In the uh, 1870 census, the family was living in Dayton, Michigan, and in the 1900 census, when Ulysses was about 13 or 14 years old, the family was living in Novesta, Michigan. This is situated in east-central Michigan between the Saginaw Bay on Lake Huron to the northwest and Detroit to the southeast. Um, Ulysses told prison authorities that he left home at the age of 17, so sometime around 1903 or 1904. Around August or September 1905, Ulysses was in Livingston, Montana, where he got into his first bit of trouble. Livingston was a railroad city in southeastern Montana, known at the time as the original gateway city to Yellowstone National Park. Ulysses may have discovered that living on his own was not going to be easy. He told authorities that he lost $15, quote, in one of the houses on the row and took a gun to get it back. He also used the gun to bluff a Chinese restaurant keeper. He was arrested and being unable to pay the fine is in jail, end quote. His fine was $25, and I couldn't find any other details or follow-up, but the next document I found was that Ulysses enlisted into the United States Army in Montana on December 19, 1905. That could have been part of his lack of punishment or prison sentence for this uh, alleged holdup. He listed his age as 21 in military records, his occupation as painter. He had brown eyes, a muddy complexion, was five feet, eight and a half inches tall. One document noted that he was in the 14th Cavalry and served at the Presidio of Monterey Base in California. Another document noted that he was in the 27th Infantry, while another said that he was in the 20th Infantry Regiment, which was actually housed at the Presidio Base between 1906 and 1909. Around that time, the Army School of Musketry was training soldiers and sending them to the Philippines. In 1906, Ulysses and three other soldiers were actually put in charge of overseeing eight military prisoners, including a particularly dangerous soldier named Private William I. Cook. Cook had been recently acquitted of manslaughter after a soldier from his company in the Coast Artillery named George Webster was found dead at the foot of a flight of steps shortly after the two were seen having an argument. After William Cook was acquitted of the murder, he broke into the company's armory, stole several revolvers, which he used to hold up several people, but failed to get any money and valuables. He was arrested and, again, was awaiting trial for this charge. In early March, Cook requested to go to the hospital, which is where Ulysses was tasked with guarding him, along with these seven other soldiers awaiting trial. Quote, Upon reaching the hospital, the guard allowed the prisoners to mingle with the soldiers, who were also awaiting their turn to see the doctor. Cook, who has always been considered a dangerous character, saw his opportunity and, dashing up the back stairs, made good his escape through a window from the second story of the hospital. 
Cook was not missed until his turn came for treatment and his name was called from the guard book. The four sentries, including Private Beerup of the 27th, were immediately locked up pending investigation of a board of inquiry, end quote. So we know Ulysses was locked up for investigation after William escaped from this watch. William was actually caught by the end of the month and was found guilty of larceny and sentenced to seven years in the federal penitentiary. It's unclear if Ulysses was punished for losing William Cook at the hospital, and if so, for how long. Anyone who knows California, specifically San Francisco history, might know about the devastating earthquake that struck on April 18, 1906. The damage from the estimated 7.8 magnitude earthquake was severe and destroyed water pipes and leveled several buildings. Over 500 blocks in the heart of the city were destroyed when fires began and firefighters lacked the necessary water to put them out. U.S. Army troops stationed at Presidio and other Bay Area posts quickly responded to help quell the fires, maintain lines of communication, set up refugee tent camps, and maintain order. The city's over 400,000 newly unhoused population attempted to flee as looting began. Martial law was called and 2,000 soldiers began patrolling the streets, quote, under orders to shoot thieves and vandals on sight, end quote. It is estimated that roughly 3,000 people lost their lives from the devastation of the earthquake and the ensuing martial law. If Ulysses was not being punished at this time because Cook had escaped a month earlier, he would undoubtedly have been in company with other soldiers in helping during this tragic event. 1906 continued to be a devastating year for Ulysses. On Christmas Eve, December 24, 1906, his mother Emily died from pulmonary tuberculosis at the age of 46. We can only assume Ulysses received word at his base. This may have led to a document on Ancestry.com that noted that he was dishonorably discharged on February 16, 1907 at Presidio. I could not find any details or notes about why he was dishonorably discharged from the military. In August 1908, a man named Fred Mudge enlisted at the Jefferson Barracks in Missouri, stating that he wanted to enlist into infantry service. He told authorities that he was from Toledo, Ohio. A week later, a story was placed in the St. Louis Globe Democrat that, quote, Fred Mudge, 16th Recruit Company, has been placed in confinement at this depot, charged with having fraudulently enlisted and being identical with Ulysses Beerup, late of the 27th Company Coast Artillery Corps, who was dishonorably discharged from the service and served a sentence in the prison at Alcatraz Island, California, for military offenses, end quote. So again, he may have actually served time in Alcatraz while it was a military prison, uh, but mm -hmm. I couldn't find any details of this. This alias of Fred Mudge and Fred Monk actually followed Ulysses throughout his life. I actually have requests out to the amazing folks at the historic prison looking into it, and I will follow up if I get any information from them. Now, following the trail of Fred Monk, I did find other arrests around this time. During the spring of 1908, a Fred Monk stopped at the home of a man named Joseph Lee of Tree Oaks, Michigan. He left quickly without saying a goodbye, and Joseph discovered his gold watch, an overcoat, $10 in cash, and several other items were missing. A warrant was issued for Fred's arrest. Fred apparently headed to Grand Rapids where he committed a burglary, and after serving three months in jail, 
He was about to be released when he was brought before a judge in Three Oaks that November. He pled not guilty and said to the judge, quote, This is the first time I was ever in Three Oaks, end quote. After saying this, Joseph Lee, the man he had originally stolen from, entered the courtroom and said, Hello, Fred Mung. I'm glad to see you. <laughs> Mung apparently failed to recognize Joseph. And I couldn't find out what sort of punishment resulted from this, but he was most likely just fined and served a sentence in jail. And again, I'm, I'm pretty certain that this is Ulysses Beerup living under this alias at this time. Couldn't actually be a Fred Mung that was living at that time, though. Now, I lost track of Ulysses until his next run-in with the law in 1911. I called the amazing archivists at the Wyoming State Archives and asked for information about their number 1629. Immediately, archivist Carl Hallberg sent me the mugshot and index form for this number, and the name was Fred Barrup. Fred arrived at the prison on June 8, 1911. Apparently, Ulysses saw the perfect opportunity to steal some weapons while in Douglas, Wyoming. He approached the store of A and A and C Rice, which had two six-shooters and some ammunition on display in the window. Ulysses tossed a brick through the window and took off with the weapons. Sheriff Barber quickly solved the case and arrested Ulysses the following day. Of course, he came in saying his name was Fred. That Friday, Ulysses, under Fred, pled guilty in court and was taken to the state penitentiary in Rollins and given the number 1629 with a sentence of from 12 to 18 months in the penitentiary. So his intake from his mugshot, we know for certain it is our Ulysses beer up. And the index on the back of the mugshot matches Idaho's from the same period. So they are the same, same form system. Name, Fred Barrup, number 1629, crime, burglary, age, 25, height, 5 foot 9 and a quarters inches tall, 142 pounds, his build was good, he had dark hair, brown eyes, a dark complexion, he's born in Michigan, his occupation was painter, and he's received from Douglas County with a sentence of 12 to 18 months. He had cut scars across the nail and around the middle fingers of his left hand, two cut scars above 2 inches joint index finger. His nose had been broken. He had long, irregular scars, about eight inches at the right of the liver. Very difficult to, to read this, but uh, these actually match up with scars that were on his Idaho Bertion as well. Listed his father as Albert Barrup in Cass City, Michigan. A note was, no friends given on the back of this index. Wyoming's first state penitentiary opened in Rollins in December 1901. It had 104 cells, no plumbing or water, and inadequate heating. The prison was active for 80 years and held around 13,500 people, including 11 women. Like the old Idaho penitentiary, overcrowding led to the constant construction of additional cell blocks throughout the prison's history. They even had a dungeon and other forms of solitary confinement, including a punishment pole. Men were reportedly handcuffed to the pole and beaten with rubber hoses. There were 14 executions at the prison, including nine hangings and five executions in the gas chamber. Prisoners confined in the Wyoming Penitentiary in Rollins were put to work making brooms at this time in the prison's history. Wyoming's governor, Joseph Carey, was a member of the Progressive Party, and you may remember Theodore Roosevelt's Bull Moose Party, which called for reforms through society, including in the criminal justice system. Governor Carey wanted to end the private broom factory once the contract was complete. 
Roads were an issue in Wyoming, and discussions were held between 1911 and 1912 to send prisoners to road camps in underdeveloped areas to improve and create roads and close the broom shop, which was contracted to the prison through a private company. On July 18, 1912, two months before Ulysses' release from the prison, Governor Carey and his board toured several state facilities, including the Rollins Penitentiary. As soon as the governor's party left the prison, the broom factory went up in flames. Quote, the warden states that the fire was undoubtedly of incendiary origin, as when the first small blaze was discovered, the penitentiary hose was connected up and the water turned on. It was then discovered that the hose was cut in numerous places and the water leaked out before it reached the nozzles. <laughs> so the, the building and nearly everything inside was destroyed, resulting in over $10,000 in losses. Quote, many of the convicts howled in fiendish glee when they saw the flames leaping through the roof, and it was necessary for the warden to go into the cell rooms and threaten to have them lashed before they were quieted. So, a journalist from the Laramie Republican had one of the cheekiest quotes stating, quote, Things are going fine at the state penitentiary, aside from one cold-blooded murder, a disembowelment, a suicide, seven or eight escapes from the road gangs, three or four other desperate breaks from liberty, and the burning of the broom factory. Nothing has happened there worthy of a news item. <laughs> I just love that. I, I love him. He is me. That was my past life. I know. I was like, this sounds like a comment Sky would say. I have to include this. <laughs> So. <laughs> things are fine I, I i the epitome of that meme where the dog is in the room that's on fire and he's just like this is fine <laughs> totally. funny funny so ulysses aka fred Barrup, was discharged from the rollins penitentiary on september 26 1912 serving just over one year and three months in the prison following month would turn out to be one of the most brutal and bloody in the Rollins prison history when one African-American prisoner was lynched by a mob of prisoners after he assaulted an elderly woman in town that frequently visited and helped the prisoners. And then right after that, two large-scale escape attempts, which resulted in several deaths of prisoners, guards, and civilians occurred. Even Idaho's warden Snook commented on what was going on in Rollins and other western states, pushing these progressive ideas for political gain. Quote, Some of the reform have been good and others bad. The idea of trying to use the lenient method with confirmed criminals who fit into one penitentiary to another is a mistaken one. Only first-termers can be dealt with in this manner. The management of the penitentiaries is a science in itself. The handling of the convict is a problem that has never been completely solved. If it is ever is entirely solved, it will be by men who have had experience in this sort of work and not by governors who attempt to make reforms that are based on theory and not on actual practice. Governor Carey of Wyoming is one of those who has instituted some of those reforms. The outbreak at the Rollins Penitentiary does not come as a surprise. John Snook, he's one of my favorite wardens here at the time. We'll hear a little bit more about him in a moment, but clearly he's saying these ideas are not based in actual like experience dealing with desperados and convicts. Like They are being too lenient on these guys, and of course this is what's going to happen in Rollins. 
he probably could not have predicted what would occur in a few short months when some of these Rollins Penitentiary prisoners arrived at the Idaho State Penitentiary, but they would actually have to deal with John Snook, and we'll hear a bit about that in a moment. To set up the next stop in Ulysses Barrop's life, it is important to understand the local option laws in the early 1900s. We've talked a lot about the temperance movements and Idaho's early adoption of prohibition in 1916 before it was put into effect nationally in 1920. Local option laws allowed cities and counties to decide if they were wet, as in they allowed the legal sale and taxation of alcohol, or they were dry, in which the sale of alcohol was outlawed. The newspaper accounts of the votes and opinions of the time are fascinating and very entertaining, I will say. The town of Soda Springs in southeast Idaho went dry during the summer of 1911, and I suspect the nearby town of Grace followed suit. By December 1913, all of Bannock County went dry, outlawing the sale of liquor. A report from the Bingham County News called this a victory for bootleggers. As we know from Prohibition, outlawing alcohol or any drug in general tends to create an opposite effect as organized crime develops and criminals make a tremendous amount of money selling bootlegged whiskey at this time. In the early 1910s, you could travel across Idaho from one town to the next, all with differing laws for alcohol. For a recently incarcerated Ulysses Barrup, selling illegal alcohol in dry towns would have been good and pretty easy money. The price was a fine of from about 100 to $500 and four months in jail, typically. In early 1913, I found stories of sheriffs in several dry cities in Idaho raiding clubs, hotels, and homes to eliminate all alcohol from their jurisdictions. That year, the Phoenix Construction Company was rushing to complete a steel power transmission line between Grace, Idaho, and Salt Lake City, Utah. During the summer, the company put ads in newspapers looking for, quote, 200 energetic young white men for work assembling and erecting steel towers for transmission line work in Utah and Idaho. $2 per day and board. Good, clean camp. Interesting work and good chance for advancement, end quote. Now, if you get 200 strong men into a work camp, chances are good that a number of them are going to be opposed to the town's dry law. That summer, a man named W.J. McFadden was actually appointed a special deputy by the Bannock Board of County Commissioners in July 1913. The Phoenix Construction Company actually paid his salary and board as he served both as sheriff and the boss of the painting crew for that company during the construction project. During the evening of August 25, 1913, Ulysses Barrup rolled into Grace, Idaho, ready to make some money. He had a suitcase full of bootleg whiskey and plenty of potential customers who would be eager for a bottle of whiskey that Saturday night. He stopped in the Phoenix Construction Company Camp Number 2, just south of Grace, and opened up business. At 9.30 p.m., Deputy McFadden spotted Ulysses actively selling a bottle of whiskey from his buggy to a man named James Tracy. McFadden approached Ulysses with his revolver drawn and put Ulysses and his customer under arrest. According to one account, McFadden took control of the buggy and began the trek towards the jail in Pocatello. Barrup, acting quickly, grabbed hold of the revolver and stripped it from McFadden. He then turned the sheriff's gun on him and fired two times. According to Ulysses' account, when Sheriff McFadden got into the buggy, quote, I drew my revolver. 
and told the officer to let go of the lines, jumping from the buggy as I did so. McFadden at that instant drew his gun and we stood facing each other, weapon in hand, fully a minute before a shot was fired. I fully expected the officer to shoot me and I concluded to shoot the lines out of his hands and get away. I shot him in the hand and the lines were dropped, whereupon I grabbed them and jumped into the buggy and drove away, McFadden following and shooting at me. I did not see McFadden again, but thought someone undertook to climb into the back end of the buggy and I fired two shots in that direction aimlessly. The shots must have struck the officer's chest as they tell me he was shot three times, the number of shots I fired. When I reached Soda Springs, I was fearful that I had done something awful and I threw my gun into a wheat field near the stockyards. I went as far as Granger and then returning to the west, stopping off a short time at Evanston and also a few hours at Ogden, I am sorry over the shooting but I really was in fear of my life when I fired the first shot and the two other shots were not intended to kill the officer, end quote. Regardless of what happened, Deputy McFadden was shot upholding his duty and Ulysses was on the run. He escaped into the darkness as more than a dozen men from the work camp chased him. McFadden was rushed to medical treatment but died from the wounds the next day. He left behind a wife and two children. James Tracy, the customer who witnessed the whole event, jumped out of the buggy and headed north to Soda Springs. He was arrested and questioned in jail. He said he had just purchased a bottle of whiskey from Ulysses, quote, who sold it from a suitcase full of liquor and bottles, end quote, when McFadden approached and the shooting occurred. He didn't have any other information about the bootlegger. Authorities followed the tracks Ulysses left. He headed south from Grace to a point near Alexander, Idaho, where he parked the buggy and ran across a plowed field headed for Way Station. It was clear he was carrying the heavy suitcase full of liquor as officers followed the tracks and noted the points that Ulysses stopped to rest, laying the large suitcase down. Ulysses doubled back to the buggy where he filled his pockets with about half the bottles and left the rest. He then continued south. Sheriff E.E. E. Lowry of Pocatello was called. He chartered a vehicle, and along with Deputy Jim Lewis, Special Deputy Gene Taylor of McCammon, and Patrolman Bob Glenn, headed for the camp around 11 p.m. They arrived about five hours after the shooting at 2 a.m., several hours behind Ulysses' bear-up. The officers split into groups to search the valley and spread out to all the nearest railroad stations. The newspaper gave a description of Ulysses as being between 25 and 28 years old, 165 pounds, 5 feet 10 inches with a black mustache and dark features, a crooked and sharp nose, a black hat with blue overalls, and a jumper. Quote, served three years in the United States Army and one year in the Wyoming Penitentiary, has all the appearance of a soldier, is very quiet, has scar running from point of shoulder blade to hip joint about a quarter of an inch wide, end quote. And most significant, he had gold fillings in his front teeth. So he's got this very, like, outlaw, Wild West... Gangster. Gangster, yeah. Very scary look to him. Yeah. Governor Haynes set a reward of $500 for Ulysses Barrett's arrest. Bannock County offered an additional $250 for his capture, and the Phoenix Construction Company put in another $250. So the reward for his capture was placed at $1,000. Wow. Authorities were correct that Ulysses would board a train. He beat them to the train station and arrived in Granger, Wyoming, where he quickly boarded a Union Pacific train, which passed through Ogden, Utah, two days later. Two days after the shooting, Ulysses made a huge mistake in Ogden. He sent a letter to the 
Largelier Bank in Soda Springs, which stated, quote, August 25th, 1913, the bank Soda Springs, Dear Sir, would you please send the rest of my money to Cobra, Nevada and send me the other two checks. Here's my check of $14. Send at once to Mr. Ulysses G. Barrup, end quote. Uh, buddy. Yeah. This postcard has so many misspellings. It's just, he was probably just scrambling to quickly write this at that train station and get it sent off. Staff from the bank immediately gave Sheriff Lowry the note. Sheriff Lowry crafted a plan. He sent Sheriff George Crane to Ogden just in case it was a ruse and had him search for Ulysses. Meanwhile, Lowry worked with the bank to have the check sent to Cobra. On August 28th, the cashier's check arrived at the railroad station in Cobra, Nevada. Officers were positioned around the station throughout the day, just waiting. Finally, Ulysses arrived on the train and checked in at the station. Authorities, quote, observed him receive the letter at the post office, deferring making the arrest until the man opened the envelope and was pursuing the contents. This action made his identification certain, end quote. They surrounded him and placed him under arrest. Ulysses, surprisingly, offered no resistance and had no weapon on him. Four days after shooting and killing Deputy McFadden, Ulysses Barrup was captured. He returned to Idaho the following day. Sheriff Lowry said that, quote, he regrets that capital punishment does not prevail in Idaho, as it is his judgment that such men as Barrup should not be given a chance to live in any community. Judging from the attitude of Sheriff Lowry, after having one of the best deputies shot down, it will not be well for Barrup to attempt escape while on the way to Pocatello, end quote. Ulysses told newspapers that he had Bright's disease, a painful kidney disease that prevented him from holding down a normal square job. Today we call this nephritis, and it's essentially a kidney damage in which toxins, salts, excess fluids, these aren't removed from your kidneys like they should be. Mm. Uh, symptoms include fluid in the lungs, blood in the urine, swelling of the face and ankles, inability or reduced frequency of urine, or foam or blood in the urine. So very painful and typically results in kidney failure and death. And he took the train to Pocatello and he was placed in the jail, but he wasn't going to wait for justice. On September 15th, Ulysses and four other men were allowed to use the corridor in front of their cells where they got a hold of a metal pipe. They used it to break locks off all the cell doors and began sawing their way out through the bricks. The deputy sheriff heard the rumbling and waited with his firearm ready. Quote, had one of them managed to get through and poke his head into sight, there might have been a criminal case minus on the session's docket, end quote. All the men were actually locked up in punishment cells when backup arrived. Quote, Sheriff Lowry has established a canary cage. It is a nice little cage and will hold anything from a murderer to a case of confiscated bootleg whiskey, end quote. So these men were basically locked up in tiny cages awaiting their trials. Ulysses was held without bail for trial, and he pled not guilty on September 17th, two days after this attempt. Gathering a jury was difficult and took two days as the attorneys exhausted their peremptory challenges five or six times as members of the jury were either for or against the local option and or capital punishment laws. Ulysses was pleading self-defense while the prosecution was looking for the death penalty. The customer who witnessed the murder firsthand, James Tracy, recounted his experience. 
McFadden's 38 Ivor Johnson revolver did show signs that Ulysses attempted to shoot the gun out of his hand. Quote, The rubber handle was shot off it while in the hand of McFadden. The dead man's right hand showed that the second finger had been shot off, that the bullet had mm-hmm. gone through the composition handle and through the center of the hand, and part of the broken pistol butt had nearly cut off a thumb. End quote. Yikes. Yeah. Ulysses took the stand in his own defense and apparently only changed his demeanor once when the prosecution showed him his mugshot from his incarceration in the Wyoming State Penitentiary, which, if you're interested in seeing that, I'll include that on our Facebook page. The prosecution depicted him as a criminal ex-convict who was persistently breaking Idaho's laws. The jury deliberated about seven hours, and during the deliberation, the death penalty was put on the table. And the first vote came with six ballots in favor of the gallows. A little after midnight on October 11th, 1913, Ulysses Barrow was found guilty, and the jury called for a fixed penalty of life in the Idaho State Penitentiary. Ulysses, quote, stoically received the sentence of Judge Budge this morning, committing him to the State Penitentiary at Boise for the balance of his natural life. Barrow never flinched or showed the least emotion when the sentence was imposed, And though Judge Budge gave a kindly admonition that good conduct would prove beneficial to him, neither color nor sign of disturbance was evident. And he maintained the same coolness and deliberation which possessed him at the time he shot McFadden in cold blood. It is rather a hard prospect for a young man to contemplate spending the bulk of his good years behind bars, while in the loneliness of a cell he may ponder over the situation. He didn't display any remorse in the courtroom. End quote. And I'm, I apologize for all the quotes, but there's so many good ones. Uh, there's another one that kind of pokes fun from the Pocatello Tribune called Barrup, Baird, and Bagan Bound for the Boise Bastille, detailing that the three bad boys of Bannock were picked up by traveling guard Tom Jolly, and besides being a bad bunch, the trio of bees sentenced by Judge Budge to break boulders. <laughs> Whew, a lot of alliteration. <laughs> yes, so many bees. I also can, can we talk about Judge Budge? <laughs> you won't yeah. budge. You won't budge. I won't budge. Yeah, Judge. <laughs> <laughs> judge Budge. <laughs> it's like it's like Bob blah blah on the rest of Bob blah. <laughs> Bob blah 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 blah. Loblog. Oh my gosh! How can you say it faster? I can't. Uh, Bob blah blah's loblog. <laughs> exactly. I was just like. The amount of fun that they had as journalists at this time is just, it's too much. As you should. Sometimes it's hilarious. It is. Yeah. So his intake, Ulysses G. Barrup, number 2062, received October 12th, 1913, crime murder of the first degree, age 27, height 5 feet 9.5 inches tall. He weighed 150 pounds. He had a regular build. He had dark brown hair, blue eyes, but every other account said he had brown eyes, dark complexion. He was born in Cass City, Michigan. His marital status, he was single. His father, Albert Barrup, was living in Cass City, Michigan. His mother died five years earlier when he was 22 years old. He left home at the age of 17. He had religious instruction in the Methodist church and still considered himself Methodist. He attended five years of school. He was a moderate drinker, listed his occupation as sheep herder instead of painter. He was received from Bannock County with a life sentence. He documented his year and a half in the Rollins Penitentiary. 
he was missing one upper left tooth and he had three front gold teeth and his property was all turned in to the warden. Warren John Snook completed his Bertion form, which showed that he had a cut and a break in his nose, vaccination marks on his left arm, scars on his right index finger, left index and middle fingers, the back of his neck, below his left shoulder blade, and on his left shin. He also had a large operation scar on his lower right back and a cut scar on his left shoulder blade. And Warden Snook noted that he had stubbed fingers. The Largelier Bank of Soda Springs made a formal demand for the $1,000 reward money offered by Governor Haynes, the Bannock County, and the Phoenix Construction Company. Sheriff Lowry was actually asked if he thought that the bank should receive the reward, and he said no. Quote, as a matter of fact, if anyone is entitled to a reward, it should go to McFadden's widow as she needs it, has nothing, and has a little family to support, and could use the money very beneficially. I believe that she should be taken care of in that matter. End quote. And I actually couldn't find out if this reward money was ever doled out to anybody. But I hope that McFadden's, you know, plea brought that money to her. Seven months into his life sentence, Ulysses devised an escape plan. On Saturday, May 23, 1914, Ulysses and three other prisoners decided to make a dash for freedom over the prison wall. At that time, only two guards in opposite towers were in their posts, while the other two left their posts for their lunch break. Saturday also happens to be the time that prisoners could take their wooden bed frames out into the prison yard to be scrubbed and disinfected. So this is before we have the metal frames that we have now. It's 1914. So listeners, you have to know that at this time, most of the western portion of the site didn't exist, including Four House, Five House, the basketball court, or the shirt factory building. So the yard was open and essentially empty. Ulysses, Lyman Jones, and cellmates D.A. Allers and E.R. Howard were the four men leading the break. Ulysses and Lyman Jones darted to the wall, one carrying a table, the other a barrel, which they stacked on the table. Guard Brassard was new to the job, and he was stationed in Tower 1 in the northwest corner. So this is the tower that most visitors, when you come to the Old Bend, that's the one you're going to see first when you drive up the road. He saw Ulysses and Lyman Jones charge into the deadline. He yelled for them to get back from the wall. Get back from the wall! But they continued. So Broussard opened fire. He missed the two men as they climbed the table and the barrel and easily scaled the wall and jumped the roughly 16 feet to the other side. They hid under the wooden guard walkway outside the western wall of the guard's line of sight. At that same time, Guard Howell, stationed in Tower 3 in the southeast corner, saw six to eight men dart towards the south wall, carrying a ladder made of bed frames tied and hammered together. He shouted for them to stop. Stop! Three of the men stopped, but cellmates Allers and Howard continued and raised their makeshift ladder to the wall. Guard Howell took his time aiming, quote, resting his gun on the sill of the tower window, end quote. He fired. The rifle cartridge misfired. By the time he got another round into the weapon, D.A. Allers had scaled the wall and made it to the other side. The makeshift ladder broke as a cellmate Howard attempted to climb behind him. Howard fell back into the deadline inside the prison yard. Allers, Ulysses, and Lyman sprinted towards the prison powerhouse. Guard Howard took aim again at Allers and fired as they reached the building 300 yards south of the prison wall. 
This time, the rifle's bullet rang true as the bullet struck Allers in the forearm, shattering a bone. When they arrived at the building, Allers collapsed. Ulysses and Lyman continued running. Warden Snook was clocking off and heading to the warden's house for lunch when he heard the gunfire. He quickly returned to the prison armory and grabbed a rifle from the vault and took up the chase. He watched as Lyman and Ulysses ran towards Mosley Ranch, where today the Warm Springs golf course now resides. Snook stopped momentarily to aim and fire his rifle as he pursued the men. Guard Ray H. Peterson, brother of Idaho's attorney general, was eating lunch in the guard's house when he heard the gunshots. He rushed over and grabbed a rifle from the armory and followed the tracks of Warden Snook. Quote, Peterson is an unusually fast runner, and he soon overtook Warden Snook, end quote. Snook realized that Peterson had a better chance of catching them and turned around to get a saddle horse and a bloodhound. There was a slight hill beyond the prison's powerhouse, so Peterson couldn't see the men until he came to Warm Springs Avenue and saw the men running through the plowed field about 250 yards away. He stopped, took aim, and fired. His first shot struck Ulysses' beer up just above the left hip. Ulysses collapsed in the field. The next bullet struck Lyman Jones in the leg. Lyman collapsed right as Peterson fired a third bullet. Quote, the course of the bullet may be clearly judged from the impression it made on a picket fence close by, and had Jones kept on running, it would undoubtedly have hit him in about the same place the first shot hit Barrup, end quote. Warden Snook arrived on saddle horse to the scene of the downed prisoners, and he immediately turned around for an automobile. Allers, with his shattered forearm, Lyman with his pierced leg, and Ulysses with a bullet through his abdomen, were brought back to the prison. Quote, a doctor was on the scene in a few minutes. He immediately announced that Barrup could not live. The bullet had pierced his vital organs and had not come out. He was bleeding internally. The pastor of one of the local churches was sent for by the warden, and he did what he could to comfort Barrup in his last hours. He suffered much pain, and even opiates failed to relieve him. End quote. At 3.25 p.m., Ulysses Barrup was pronounced dead. Quote, in a statement made shortly before his death, Barrup told Warden Snook he expected to be shot when he attempted the escape. He went on to say that for years he had been a sufferer from Bright's disease, and it bothered him to such an extent that he could not hold a position and was driven into a life of crime. He said the disease had caused him great suffering of late, and he concluded that since he was in for life, he might as well have it over with, end quote. Albert Barrup in Cass City, Michigan, was contacted about his son's death. Newspapers reported that he received the telegram, but Warren Snook never received a response. So, on May 27, 1914, at 11 a.m., Reverend Wilsey Martin of the First Methodist Church officiated the burial of Ulysses Barrup in the prison cemetery. Any visitor to the prison cemetery will notice Ulysses' unique headstone, a standing obelisk with white marble caption that reads, quote, in memory of U.G. Barrup, aged 29 years, died May 23rd, 1914, end quote. There's no information as to who paid for the stone, but it could be that Ulysses' gold teeth and the money from his bank accounts was used to pay for it. Guard Ray Peterson was actually brought before Governor Haynes and his brother, the Attorney General, and questioned of the details of the event. A coroner's jury was brought together to consider charging Peterson for the killing of Ulysses. They came to the verdict that it was a justifiable homicide. 
The rest of the men, they were actually required to serve out their full sentences, and an additional five years was tacked on to their sentence as well for the escape attempt. And that is the end of Ulysses Barup's mm-hmm. life. And uh, any visitor that comes out, it is one of the favorite stories that our guides like to tell during our cemetery tours, which now happen during Halloween and in March when we do our cemetery tours in the spring. That is wow. Ulysses Birup, number 2062. Such a heavy story. Yeah, sad at the end. I did have a question. Yeah. Um, cause, so you said he had Bright's disease, which is a kidney disease, and he was shot just above his left hip. Yeah. Do you think part of the reason he was in... Because, I mean, okay. I mean, I'm a historian. Let's not pretend I know anything about human anatomy. But, like, that's vaguely the area that your kidneys are in, yes? Uh-huh, Yeah. Mm. So I wonder if, because if, it said it doesn't release the toxins or it doesn't filter them. It Like it doesn't filter them out, yeah. So so there's just like a bunch of toxins in his kidney. Already, right. yeah. and then to be... Already, and so if it hit his kidney, can you imagine yeah. what toxins are coming out of that into his bloodstream? Like, I bet he was in. And, I mean, also, you were shot in the hip. Like, that is immense amounts of pain anyway, but. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Oh. I mean, gosh, we should have ended on mine with the beauty school seriously yeah (laughs) what an interesting uh, story overall and what an unfortunate way to have it end absolutely also don't don't you find it curious that he like signed the whole banknote don't you think that's weird you know i feel like purposeful almost yeah i think he was just on the run and he was just trying to move so quickly and trying to get his money as fast as he could so that he could you know start a new life somewhere under a new alias and mm. i don't think he had much time to really think about his actions about you know? yeah fair enough and obviously you yeah. know, he had a criminal record that was going to follow him all the newspapers immediately after the shooting they were like yeah this is definitely fred mung who is ulysses beer who was just released from wyoming like mm. this is already spreading so on the train stations he probably picked up a, a newspaper and, and read this story as he's like traveling to wyoming and then to ogden and then to nevada he's probably following his own story and seeing that they're mm-hmm. like right on his tracks which is crazy right yeah shoot well well done Ugh, so young how old was he when he died 29 29 is what his gravestone says yeah as a third as someone who was 29 earlier this year that's simply far too young yeah, yeah. For, for a story i tell a lot i learned a lot that's a lot of information about him i did not know we have this little publication called buried secrets about the prison cemetery and we created this back in like 2016 before we had access to such a wide collection of digitized newspapers and different digitized Mm -hmm. resources so you know what started as literally i had like maybe 50 60 pages of newspaper clippings about this story just from the idaho statesman and other local idaho newspapers and over the last like three weeks i i found close to 150 pages worth of research on him and I obviously, there's still more to be discovered about his military career and potentially his time at Alcatraz. And I'm like, mm-hmm. it's the, the blessing and the curse of access that mm-hmm. I, sometimes I feel like the story's not complete, that there's still more. But it, it felt good to like finally 
have a, a full picture of his time yeah. because I, I was so curious about his time in Wyoming and then to see that he was involved in, in these pretty pivotal moments in that prison's history that the ending of this mm-hmm. broom factory that had been in, in service for like a decade and like the destructive riot that ends that program it's just it's just crazy that he was in you know part of that and he's probably one of the ones hooping and hollering as it burned and right. it's yeah it's always that wild thing of like we just keep finding stones and now we have to uncover every one of them and it's mm-hmm. a blessing and a curse <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah and you can go to the rollins um the old penitentiary site yeah. um, it's for some reason i never did make my way out there because it was only like an hour or two away from Laramie where I went to school. But yeah, I mean, if you're in Wyoming and, and haven't been, please visit. I think it's, it seems really interesting. I just haven't gotten to visit. Yeah. And this week they are also hosting a Halloween event. They've been uh, closed for the last two weeks, just in preparation for it. So if you're in the area, definitely go check it out, support them like us. You know, it's, it's the biggest fundraiser for the year. And it's super important that we sell tickets and people come out and have a good time and, and support these programs and support your local historical societies and uh, <laughs> go to their historic prisons. <laughs> All right. And listen to their podcasts. Well, yeah. great job, Sky and Anthony. Both those stories were incredible, if not for very different reasons. Thank you, Sam. Thanks for hanging out today. And uh, thank you, Sky, for taking some time out of your PhD to come tell a story. Oh, this is, this is the fun part. Oh, yeah. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, have a, a fantastic Halloween. Tune in next week for our super spooky Halloween episode. Sam has done an amazing job editing it, and I'm just so excited for everybody to hear it. Do your own time. Do your own number. Have a good one, everybody. And don't start no stuff. (laughs) If you enjoyed Pine Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. Not only do we get to hear your feedback about the show, but it helps others find us as well. If you're interested in finding out more about the podcast and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in today's episode, follow our Facebook group at Behind Gray Walls Podcast. We have a podcast Instagram as well. You can find us on Instagram at Behind Gray Walls Pod.